Ephesians breaks into two parts. The first three chapters are laying out what God has done in spite of what we deserve. It's showing that it's a gospel of grace, not a gospel of race. That comes up especially in chapter 2. And so we're going to read here just a minute in chapter 3, but then chapter 4, 5, and 6 is how we're to respond. So think about the old Heidelberg Catechism, how it breaks down into three parts. Guilt, grace, then gratitude. That's kind of how Ephesians breaks down. Chapters 1 through 3, our guilt, God's grace. Chapter 4 through 6, our response of gratitude. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, has a lot to do with God's grace and what he had done and that he had planned this moment a long time. So here we go. For this reason, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, as I wrote in the first two chapters of this letter, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it is, as, has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Messiah, in Christ Jesus, through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me. Oh, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone who is uh, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly places. And now we turn to Malachi chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 6. This is on page... 801 in that blue Bible, we're going to actually read and work through chapter 1, 6 through 2, 9. We will actually do it. It's okay. You'll be fine. It's a large section, but chapter 1, 6 through chapter 2, verse 9 in Malachi. So I'm going to encourage you to keep your Bibles and apps open through the sermon so you can see what I'm talking about. So Micah chapter 1, verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father... Where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? Says Yahweh of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favors, as the Lord says, Yahweh of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says Yahweh of hosts? Oh, that there was one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says Yahweh of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For 
from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be made great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its fruit, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says Yahweh of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hands, says Yahweh? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and gets sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says Yahweh of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says Yahweh of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessing. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says Yahweh of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Yahweh of hosts. But you have one turned aside from the way. Two, you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. Three, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says Yahweh of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as four, you do not keep my ways, but five, show partiality in your instruction. What I've read to you from Ephesians and Malachi is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O oh, great King, may your name be great among the nations. Steer us. Steer us through this stern and stiff passage where your words make us squirm, help us to change. And where we sense our own inadequacy, strengthen us by your Spirit and bring us to know better than ever that, that you say these things because you love us deeply and thus you love us decidedly. In the name of Jesus Christ, who is the display of your love, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the sermon notes are on the back of the worship guide there. Some sub points. It's the second part of a series we're doing through Malachi called Uninvited. This is the second part. And my friends, I have watched it happen too often. Many of my fellow seminarians whom I went to seminary with, a Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, who were hot for the church and very warm for Jesus, many of them have crashed and burned or just simply walked away. Now thank God that many have held the line and sailed straight, but enough have imploded that it's troubling. The same has happened in our own denomination. Since I have been a Presbyterian minister, it's happened in the last, in these three presbyteries I've been a part of in a disturbing number. 
Now, there are all kinds of reasons why ministers crash and burn, but in the end, I think, some of what is addressed in this section that we just read probably lies at its root. Coming to deal lightly with the outsides of holy things. Coming to deal lightly with the outsides of holy things. My friends, when grace becomes uninspiring, it's likely because we've forgotten what we have been saved from and how great grace really is. Or to put it in the words of Cornelius Plantiga in his wonderful book, and I believe this quotation is in your sermon notes, and if it's not, shame on me, it should have been. But in his wonderful book, Beyond Doubt, and I'm going to point this out now because I'm going to come back to this quote about three or four more times. I think he does, he hits the nail on the head. Here's what he wrote. When the Christian life goes flat, look for some loss of sensitivity to sin or grace. When the Christian life goes flat, look for some loss of sensitivity to sin or grace. You hear that loss of sensitivity here in what we just read to you, specifically in the two simpering questions in this passage, in verse 6 and 7. Oh, how have we despised your name? How have we polluted your food? And then it comes through clearly, loud and clear, through the whining statement. Now think about this statement. What a weariness it is. There's been truly a loss of sensitivity to sin and grace there. The priests are singing with Alanis Morissette, but you're not allowed. You're uninvited. And so let's look into this passage, and what we're going to see is God's honor contrasted to the priest's profanity. So I'm going to start with the priest's profanity, just because I'm a happy guy and I like to end on happier notes, okay? So we're going to look at the priest's profanity, and then we'll look to see the contrast with God's honor, and then we're going to end on something that surprises us in the middle of all of this Model, we're going to look at the plan, the plan. So there's your three points, profanity, honor, plan. So profanity, I, by profanity what I'm referring to is exactly the way the word is defined in the dictionary. It's the idea of irreverence. It's not swearing, that's just one aspect of profanity. It's actually irreverence. Irreverence, not giving God his due. So profanity. So why is God speaking to his priests in such a grim and gruff way? Well, first off, it's the old simple principle because the greater the opportunity, the greater the obligation. The greater the opportunity, the greater the obligation. Or to put it differently, the greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. Right? The greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. And it shows up right here. It shows up over in Ephesians. God's goodness, chapter 1 through 3 of Ephesians, should burst forth in our life with a greater gratitude, a life of gratitude, or to put it differently, the closeness of God through Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1 through 3, should explode and produce in us more genuine commitment, closeness, commitment, you get it? So the privilege, responsibility, and that's exactly what goes on here, it's the anticipation, you heard it in the passage we read before the confession of sin, that very fear-inducing passage where God himself shows up at the tabernacle as it's being consecrated, brings down his fire, and then Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu think God needs a little help like Baal needs help, like Asherah needed help. 
like Moloch needed help. And so they say, hey, God, we're going to add to your worship. We're going to do something that you never authorized because you need a little help. We're going to give you a hand up, good God. And so we're going to have this fire that we're going to make in this bowl and put incense on it so that we can help you a little bit. And God's response was, that was not a good idea, boys. Right? That was kind of his response, right? And Aaron got to see his two sons die. Now, you can just put yourselves in his sandals for a little bit, and you know how you'd feel. And so immediately, God speaks through Moses. And here was God's words through Moses. This is what the Lord has said among those who are near me. Closeness. I will be sanctified. Commitment. Among those who are near me, I'll be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. That's part of the reason that God is speaking to his priests in such grim and gruff ways is because the greater the opportunity, the greater the obligation, the greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. You're near me. I've called you priests to come near and be engaged in my worship day after day, week after week, month after month. I didn't have to. I did it out of grace and grace alone. And the priest said, what? Something like that, right? That's kind of how they responded. What? There's one reason, but there's a second reason. The priests have profaned God by disrespecting, and here's three subpoints by disrespecting his sacraments. Most of the sacrifices are meant to be eaten in the presence of God, like bread and wine on the communion table. To be eaten in the presence for the purposes of growing in communion. And so the sacrifices are sacramental, they're sacraments. And so notice how this unfolds here then as you look at verses uh, 7 through 9. You say, how have we despised your name by offering polluted food upon my altar? But you say, how have we polluted you by saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, when you offer the lame or the sick? You think I should be happy with that? Well, go present that to your governor. Go give him the diseased and sick and see what he thinks about your wonderful gift. This is what God says. And then in verse 14, cursed be the cheat. It's cheating. They they profane God by despising his sacraments. Further, they profane God by disrespecting his sanctuary where the sacrifices were often made right in the sanctuary. And so in verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the door that you may not kindle fire. Shut the door of the temple. That there be one of you who'd have the guts to shut the door of the temple and stop all worship in my sanctuary so that you would quit offering vain sacrifices is what he's saying in verse 10. But you profane my sanctuary, verse 12 through 13, when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness it is. What a weariness it is to worship you. That's a scary statement. And they snort at it. They profane God by disrespecting his sanctuary, his sacraments in his sanctuary. And thirdly, they they profaned God, irreverent toward God, by disrespecting his standing and their standing. I mean, that's how he kind of begins this whole section. Verse 6, look, 
Doesn't a father get honor? Where's my honor? Doesn't a master uh, get fear, you know, sense of respect? Where's my respect? Right? So they disrespect or they disregard his standing. That's part of the way they show their profaneness. But also they, re- they, they disrespect their own standing, that they've been made priests by the grace of God, by the goodness of God. And so in chapter 2, and now, O priest, this I command, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, they have the privilege of giving God special sense of honor or special way of giving honor. If you will not give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. That language, I will curse your blessings, in fact, I've already cursed them. Remember that the priests in number six, and you hear this every Sunday morning, the priests at the end of the sacrifice of worship were to raise their hand in a blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And God says, I'm going to take that blessing and I'm going to curse it. In fact, I've already begun to make it into a cursing. It's because they've dishonored him by dishonoring, disrespecting his standing of himself and the standing he gave them. And they've, disre- they've exhibited their, this disrespect by their five-fold fault. And I numbered those off as I was reading chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the five-fold fault. So let me go back through them very quickly again. You have turned aside from the way. They decided to go a different way. We're going to choose our own direction. So number one of the fivefold fault, you have turned aside from the way. Number two, you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. It was bad enough as it was that you walked away because of your position as leaders in my covenant community. You have therefore been the cause of many others being led astray, exacerbating the fault here. Number three, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi that I made with him. Number four, you do not keep my ways. Number five, you show partiality in your instruction. And those of you who went through the James series, you will know why that statement is so important. You show partiality. Probably, they were put off by the poor and wowed by the wealthy. You show partiality in your instruction. That's the five-fold fault where they exhibit even more this profanity, this disrespect for God. My friends, the barrenness, the barrenness of their bargain basement belief. You remember the bargain basement? Everybody remember that? That's where the J.C. Penney's or whatever would put, you know, the damaged articles down in the basement for big sale day. It's the cheaper stuff, maybe the damaged stuff. I mean, it's kind of like today, it would be like I could have said the Walgreens stuff. Right or Dollar General. You know what I'm talking about? Those of you who have grandkids and you buy up all those cheap toys from Dollar General because you know they're not going to last very long. You know what I'm talking about? Right? So that's the way it was. Their bargain basement belief. Cheap chintzy. Their bargain basement belief parades a very watery, thin theological triviality and saintly superficiality. These priests are those who deal with the holy on a regular daily basis. And they despise it. They're dealing lightly with the outsides of holy things. 
And my friends, if, this, if the religious leaders are this way, the ones who are supposed to know God and supposed to know how God deserves to be worshipped, if the religious leaders are this way, what might this do to, to the religiously led? Well, just go on reading this week, verse 10 and following, you'll see that it set the direction for the religiously led. This is what God was talking about back in Leviticus chapter 10. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And then the the tangent result, before my people, I will be glorified. Dealing lightly with the outside with holy things. Let me tell a little story on myself, because it's not a flattering story, so it's pretty good and safe to tell it. A couple of you who were there at that moment will remember this. Or maybe you won't. God bless you if you don't. That was supposed to be a little humorous. I was working on my doctorate degree. And it, was, uh, it had classes in January and June. And so the only time I could get out of this uh, city was to fly out late Sunday sometimes. But sometimes there were no flights to go all the way to Pittsburgh other than like about 2 in the afternoon. Well... This is a Sunday. I have to be there ready for Monday. I hate flying on Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. I don't want to fly. I don't want to travel. I don't want to do any of those things. I want to honor the Lord. But that day I had to leave early in the afternoon. I had to leave right after church. Well, I was the pastor. Already we got a problem. Right? And so I started the service. I was so animated and excited about this class. It was a great class. I was so excited about it. And I knew I had to get there. This is after 9-11, so now we've got to deal with TSA. So there's a whole nother layer of trouble, right? And so I'm racing through the service. I mean racing through the service. I already talked fast. I mean, I get it. So think about that times 10. I'm racing through the service. and We had, we had just begun to start having communion weekly. I'm racing through everything, racing through communion because my heart's already in Ambridge, Pennsylvania for the class. I already want to be there. I just need to get through this worship service so I can get on that plane to get there. That's a heart issue. You know what I'm saying? And so when we got done and I'm just racing out the door, one of my parishioners at the place said, oh, pastor, you must be really in a hurry because that was the quickest worship service Presbyterians have ever done. <laughs> and I was, as you can imagine, very defensive. And I tried to excuse myself and left and got on the plane and the whole way to Ambridge, Pennsylvania, the whole week I was in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, and the flight back from Ambridge, Pennsylvania, I was having my tail kicked by that statement. I had dealt lightly with the outsides of holy things. And I swore and I hoped that I have kept my vow that I would not do that ever again. But that's the kind of idea. We, we stumble into those things. As God probes and God prods our hearts here as we're listening to all this I want to ask you, and I don't want you to say anything to me that's just between you and God. I want to, just what's coming up to the top as you listen to this and you think about the dealing lightly with the outsides of holy things. Are you bored in worship? Do you feel glib in worship? Maybe tasteless. Done this since I was a baby. Casual. Frivolous. Negligent, artificial, 
Let me go back to Cornelius Plantinga's quotation. I'm going to tweak it just a little bit by adding one more statement to this. Here we go. You ready? When the Christian life and Christian worship go flat, when the Christian life and Christian worship go flat, look for some loss of sensitivity to sin or grace. I think that's a great way to put that. So the priests, profanity. But instead of profanity of their ways, what they should have been doing was honoring God. And that's where we come back at these verses again and see the honor of God. Their honor of God should have displayed three things, and I think these subpoints in your sermon notes. First off, should have displayed veneration. Veneration. You hear it in verse 6 of chapter 1. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm your father, where's my honor? That's what should have been there. If I'm your master, where is my fear? That's part of veneration. Where, that should be in there. Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. And then God goes on in verse 9. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? No. Well, you know human veneration. You know how that's supposed to work. I deserve it at the minimum that, if not more. They should have been displaying veneration. And then you get down to verse 11, and you'll notice twice he says, for my name will be great, for my name will be great. And then he says something like this again in verse 14, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared, feared among the nations. Their honor of God should have displayed veneration. God is great, God is good, God is holy, God is gracious his long suffering endures forever and yet he also sows judgment to to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him their response should have been veneration they should have led toward veneration honor their honor should have played should have been uh, the honor of god should have displayed veneration but secondly the honor of god should be displaying appreciation appreciation by offering the cheap and the shoddy. Okay, guys, offer your wives the cheapest thing you can and say, honey, I love you with all my heart. See if that works. Right? No, don't do that. Please don't do that. Right? By offering the cheap and the shoddy, notice how God characterizes the cheap and the shoddy, and it's in verse 8. He says it twice. Our moral categories are screwed up. He says it twice. To offer the cheap and the shoddy, he says, is this not evil? To offer the cheap and the shoddy, he says a second time, is this not evil? Wow. There should be some appreciation. If you appreciate, you don't offer the cheap and the shoddy. In fact, their whole statement down, as you get further on to verse 13 and following, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it. And then you bring by what was taken by violence or is lame or sick, sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hands? Cursed be the cheat. There was no appreciation of God. That's how they honor God or supposed to honor God is this appreciation of who he is. For I am the great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Not appreciation. But thirdly, the, they, their honor of God should be displayed by vindication. The sense of vindicating God's honor is what I mean by that. And so that's how he goes on to say, you know, 
Father should be honored. Master should be feared. That's what I should have. Vindication. He goes on to talk about this when you get to chapter 2 a little bit. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you that my covenant with Levi may stand. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him as a covenant of fear. He feared me. He stood in awe of me. He's vindicating God. That's what he did. True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. Why? Because he vindicated God's honor. God is deserving of even the best I can do in teaching. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. So veneration, appreciation, and vindication. Instead of the good enough for government work mindset, and I've said it many times, instead of the good enough for government work kind of mindset, their attitude should have been, oh, look, we're here before the great king. Amazing that he would actually want us, allow us to come into his presence. Because most kings didn't allow just anybody to come in. You know what I'm saying? Just go back and read Esther. What was Esther afraid of if she walked into the king's presence? Anybody remember? The queen of hearts. Oh, with his head. Right? That's what she was afraid the Hashers was going to say that. Right? Because kings don't have to let anyone in the presence. Do you not hear some gospel in here, my friends? God opened the door and said, yes, you. You don't deserve it. Come on in. And that's how they should have responded. We're here before the great king. Now, I want to stop a moment. I don't want to obsess on something, but I do want to point it out. I think it's legit because it's right here. I'll occasionally say to people things like this. If you were invited to lunch with the president, whether you like him or not, you understand the importance of the office, you know what I'm saying? If you were invited to lunch or, or to host a lunch for the president, what would you wear? That's a biblical perspective. It's exactly the rule of thumb God uses right here. Go see if your governor will take it. Right? If you were invited to lunch with the president or to host lunch, what would you do differently? If you were invited for lunch or to host lunch for the president or the mayor or the governor, whether you like him or not, you understand the importance of the office, what would you give differently? If you were invited... To lunch or to host a lunch for any of those officers, those politicians, those, those elected officials, what would you, how would you speak differently? You would, most likely, probably be on your best behavior and give the best you have. Right? Give the best you have. Now, I understand that in giving the best you have to God in worship, and in service is not about our earning anything. Now, by the way, I used a phrase for a reason, the best you have, because sometimes the best you have ain't much. Anybody ever been poor? You know, sod farmers, the best they got sometimes is just clean overalls. You know what I'm saying? So it's not about what you're wearing, it's the best you have. It's not about how much you can give, it's the best you have. 
So I have a friend who's a missionary in Peru, Wes Baker, a good friend of mine. He often would, will say to Peruvian Christians, young Peruvian Christians, he will say, look, will you respond back to God, for example, in giving, even if all you can afford, and he's got some people, this is all they can afford, even if all you can afford is just a grain of rice, it's the best you have. Give it with joy and give it. Right? It's that attitude. So we're not earning anything as we do this. We're simply giving God our highest joy. We're giving God our deepest gratitude. We're giving God our richest honor. Why? Because he is a great king. But not only is he a great king, he is not a detached king, an off-in-the-distance king, a tyrant king who rules with ham-fisted thuggery. Instead, this great king, chapter 1, verse 2, Loves you deeply. I have loved you. Loves you decidedly. How do you know? Because he came to you in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he came to you and he liberated you from the devastating enslavements. And he rescued you from the demoralizing impoverishments. To do what? To make you his own folk, his own sons and daughters. Does not anybody think, wow, what amazing love? Oh, but it even gets better. And then the great king who's done all that says, come, eat, and feast with me. Wow. What an honor. And then, a little plug for tonight's sermon on prayer. And then he says to you, Come and tell me your concerns for the future. Come and tell me your concerns for your own future, your your family's future, your country's future. I'm all ears. Wow! Anybody? Please? I mean, is that not exciting? That's amazing. So, think of Douglas or Cornelius Plantinga's quotation and my little tweak of it. When the Christian life and Christian worship goes flat, look for some loss of sensitivity to sin or grace. So maybe it would be good for us to ask God to give us some help. To come and salvage our sense and sensibility. To reignite our reverence and respect. Maybe on our part, there's some confessing to God that we need to do. Some imploring God, the great king, the great king of decided love and deep love. Some imploring him to come and raise up in our hearts and minds once again the amazement of his amazing love. To raise up in our hearts and minds again an ever-increasing sensitivity to sin and grace so that the profanity of our hearts and the profanity of our society will have less and less of an influence upon us and the honor of the great key 
the great king of love will come to hold greater and greater sway over us. Surprisingly, folded into all of this contrast between God's honor they they should have given and the priest's profanity comes a shocking plan. We've already had a hint of it back up in verse 5. Great is the Lord, great is Yahweh beyond the borders of Israel. But it really comes out, starts coming out in verse 11 and verse 12. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. For I am a great king, says Yahweh of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Strangely, in the midst of the muddle, there surfaces God's plan, and it shoots off in a most surprising direction. Where does it go? Worldwide worship. A pure, global offering of praise and adoration to Him. And all of that begins to surface when you get to the New Testament. So, for example, in Romans chapter 15, verses 15 through 16, Paul describes what he's doing and what the Gentiles who've been converted are doing when he puts it this way. The grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Or to put it in a different way, thinking of the passage we read from Ephesians. The mystery is the gospel of grace, not the gospel of race. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with Jewish believers. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's what Malachi 1 verse 11 and 14 are pointing to. Dear friends, that's exciting news. The plan was there. And it shows up in this muddle. Or to put it differently to you, Malachi 1 verse 11 and 14 are about you. Right there, sitting right there at 14500 Northwestern Avenue. And I could say this at other Christian churches too, mind you. But it's about you. Gathered where? Here. To do what? To worship, offering incense from the rising of the sun to its setting and so forth. Worship. I think John Piper, that Baptist minister, is absolutely spot on correct when he talks about the goal, the aim, the centerpiece of missions and evangelism is not saving souls. It's the worship of God. They're saved. People are saved. You were saved. To do what? To fulfill chapter 1, verse 11. To be drawn into worldwide worship of God and adoration and veneration of his name because he's worth it. And it's an honor to be brought in to do that. So, dear friends, the plan was for the worldwide rescue operation of God to be wrapped up and rise up in the worship of God. That's what we heard in Ephesians 2, verse 18, the assurance of pardon. For through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Truly, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Let's pray.
Lord our God, we come, we see what you've said to the priests. And you expose their profanity. And sometimes we hear our own voices wrapped up in their voices. Informality and casualness. Shallowness, cheapness. Giving you the tenth best instead of the best we can. Lord, we ask you to forgive us. We pray for Christ's sake that you would have mercy upon us. We pray that you would stir up and rouse up in our hearts again an increasing sensitivity to sin and grace. That our Christian lives and our Christian worship would no longer go flat. Increase in us veneration and admiration and vindication. That we may again appreciate that you allow us to worship you. And you made the way. In your son Jesus Christ, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one can come to the Father but through me. Thank you, Lord. May we never take that for granted. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.